Good morning, Bethel. Merry Christmas. Welcome any visitors that might be joining with us <coughs> um, as visiting family or um, just visiting church on, on Christmas morning, or not Christmas morning, but the, the Sunday closest to Christmas. Um, it's good to have you here. We're going to be um, looking at a text in First John. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And the text for this morning is found on page 1218. Um, if I say chapter 1, verse 1, that means chapter is the big number and verse is the little number. Um, so that may help to follow along. And if you are visiting for the first time, um, please uh, do us the favor of following, filling out the little visitor card that's in the pew in front of you. We'd love to just send you a letter and thank you for your visit and um, let you know if there's any way that we can serve you. We'd love to do that. There's also a quick little announcement. Um, where are Karen and Brett? I'm sorry, did I say Brett? Oh, that's terrible. Karen and Brett's brother, Justin, um, got engaged just the other night. Where are they? There they go. <laughs> so congratulations, guys. It's exciting. What's that? I know you do. I know you do. And I appreciate how gracefully you took that. So, good. Okay. <laughs> well, as we, a lot of you probably have lots on your minds right now. There's lists. Probably as you slow down and you start thinking and singing, more things are flooding to your mind. You're writing things feverishly on your bulletin. You need to remember to do this. You need to get a gift for so-and-so. You need to do this and this and this. Um, it's really easy to just be completely overwhelmed with all that we have um, to do at this time of year. And I guess the question that we need to stop and ask, which maybe is, is not too surprising as we step into church, but what is Christmas all about? might sound like a cliche question, but, but think about this. There's obviously a lot of messages out there, whether they be explicit or subtle, that are proclaiming the message and meaning of Christmas. Okay, what's the message of Christmas? Is Christmas all about family time and traditions and presents and restful vacation time? Okay, those are good things, all of them, and they certainly are a part of the season for many. But what if your family is torn up by death or divorce? What if tension and fighting seems to be more your family's tradition than eggnog and ornaments? What if you lost your job or you're in debt and the idea of presence and the pressure to buy some is really feeling like a knot in your stomach or like an elephant on your chest? What if you would love to rest by the fireplace and enjoy some vacation, but you've got to work like a dog to make ends meet and survive it all, let alone um, enjoy this holiday season? So is it about family time and traditions and presents and restful vacation time? Is that the message of Christmas? Is it about holiday parties and fun get-togethers? Those are good things also, part of the season for many of us. But what if no one's inviting you to their party? 
What if there are no fun get-togethers on your social calendar? So what, what is Christmas then for you, if that's the, the meaning, the message? How about the message of Christmas that advertising proclaims? There is good news for you, shoppers. If you've got money enough to buy the jewelry or the cars or the toys or the gadgets or whatever. So is the good news of Christmas really only for those who can give diamonds or who have the money to put a bow on a Lexus? Okay, they do that commercial every year. Um, Let's see, what should I get him this year? Oh, I know. Alexis, surprise. And then we'll go driving in the snow and come home to a crackling hearth and all of our friends will join us to toast the night away. Okay? How about the message of the cooking and hosting divas? What's their Christmas message? The holidays will be glorious and filled with joy if you have the money and the time and the creativity enough to fill your home with wonderful smells and sights and sounds and surprises. Okay, is it a bad thing to do those things? Of course not. Not everybody can do that. So is the good news of Christmas really for all those privileged people that can do these things? Is it really for all those beautiful people who always appear so happy in all the ads? Does that mean you have to be beautiful and desirable and wealthy and have this killer wardrobe and a fireplace? in order to experience the joy of Christmas. You know, it's, it's all pretty alluring at times, you know, subtly maybe more than directly. But more often than not, for lots of people, it just ends up meaning, like all those messages as we imbibe them, it ends up meaning that we don't have enough money or friends or time or creativity or whatever to really have a Merry Christmas. So maybe that's all pretty obvious to us in the church. I don't know. But maybe if it's obvious, then you're kind of still holding this out at arm's length. Think about this. If you are bummed out or jealous or resentful or bitter at Christmas, you maybe have bought this bill of goods that the message is something other than what it really is. So if you love Christmas and that love only gives this kind of token nod to Jesus, be careful. The things that you love about the season, for you, they might be good, but they're all pretty fragile. And so it means your joy is going to be on thin ice. So there's a message for us here this morning, whether Christmas has all kinds of wonderful connotations or whether it has some pretty painful connotations. Um, So I've got a message for you all this morning, and it's actually not my message. It's the Apostle John's message, um, and it's a message for all of us. So whether you love, whether you hate Christmas, what you really need to hear is the message of Christ. And that's what we're going to hear in the beginning of the letter of 1 John. So uh, 1218 in the Pew Bible. If you're using that, 1 John 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll dive into our study here. John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and then there's this parenthesis, 
and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we can come to you in Jesus' name because of his incarnation, his coming and taking on flesh, walking among us, living among us, dying for us because of his blood and sacrifice. We can be reconciled to you and come to you as our Father. And there's no greater gift than that, to have you. And I pray that that would resonate in our souls deeply, more deeply as we exit this building this morning than when we came in, that we would really know deeply that your son is the greatest gift that we could ever have, that being brought back to you, reconciled to you, is the gift, and that that good news is the message that we need to hear again this morning. Maybe some here need to hear it for the first time, or to hear it for the first time with opened ears. But if we've heard it, and we believe it, even if we've heard it a thousand times, we need to hear it again so that we are oriented to true north, so that we are fixed and focused on the right thing, so that our fellowship is in the right place based on the right things, and our joy is durable and deep and full and that we have the right message to share with those around us that we rub shoulders with this holiday season or any time. So Lord, please speak to us your message, your good news again this morning and give us ears to hear and cause our hearts to receive that message that it would be like water on thirsty ground that it would be like food to hungry souls that it would be strengthening helping building up grace for us this morning so we need your help for that and we ask for it in Jesus name amen So there's this amazing progression in uh, the beginning of John's first letter here. It's the same John that wrote the gospel um, according to John, one of the four gospels. And and if you can picture it, it's kind of like this gospel waterfall, okay? Um, Pouring out of heaven itself, 
filling a pool, overflowing, and then running over, over the ledge only to fill another pool, overflow, run over the ledge, down again. So we're going to see this progression um, in the first four verses as we go along. But keep that picture in mind because that, that grace water is flowing out of heaven and it's going to flow all the way down into our lives. It, it does. It should. So I hope that you can see that progression um, in First John, but even more, I pray that we will actually experience that grace pouring into our, our hearts, filling us up this morning. So let's look at where it starts. First John 1, 1. John writes, what was from the beginning? Okay, so talking about the Christmas message. We're talking about the incarnation of Jesus. What's behind the incarnation? What's before the incarnation? What's behind the message of Christmas? Well, look where this letter starts. What was from the beginning? If you know John and his writing at all, maybe you're hearing the echoes of the way that he began his gospel account. Remember back in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that, it, that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus. Which, in John 1, that's actually an echo of Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this message begins in the eternal heavens with the eternal life and fellowship that was present in the Trinity. God didn't create because he was lonely, because he was bored. Okay, He had perfect, loving, intimate, relational unity and fellowship. But it's the nature of a fountain to overflow. So he created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God said, let there be light. And he created everything for his glory, especially us, us beings made in his image, intended to trust him, set our, our lives on him like little reflectors, little moons to shine his light um, and fill this world with his light and his life. But then the darkness entered, right? That darkness slithered into the sacred space to upend the world, to turn the lights out. As John later writes in 1 John, the letter that we're looking at this morning, he wrote in chapter 5, verse 19, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this, the word of eternal life, the eternal son of God, because of that darkness that entered, he took on flesh, and dwelt among us on a rescue mission. The light of the world plunged down into the darkness in order to save us. Okay, so look at the second. So here's this, here's this overflowing fountain, all eternity, God the Father, Son, and Spirit in this wonderful fellowship and life, creating, creating people in His image. Then the darkness enters. And so, second stage in this progression, the incarnation, the manifestation of that life seen in the Son. So look at 1-1 again. What was from the beginning, 
what we have heard. Okay, so John was an eyewitness. He was an apostle. He was a disciple and an apostle. They heard Jesus. They saw him with their eyes. They looked at him. They touched him with their hands. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. It was revealed. We've seen it. We testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Okay, so the incarnation here. See the progression? This is crazy, mind-boggling stuff. What had to happen for the eternal Son of God, eternal, limitless Spirit, transcendent, majestic, sovereign, creator of all that is, the creator of all that is, out of nothing. We were asking our kids, you know, if you could ask one question of God, what would it be? And Johnny said, how do you make, how did you make it out of nothing? Just, just really stop and think about it. You can't even begin to get your minds around that. Just like you can't begin to think outside of time. So what had to happen for God to take on flesh and really become a human baby? Can, can we even begin to fathom the awe and wonder of that transaction? So I'm thinking about this because it's so easy. We, we, you know, we sing these songs and we talk about this all day. The incarnation, you know, away in the manger. Just throw it around. How, how can we begin to conceive of the, the awesome glory of the incarnation? That what was from the beginning became audible and visible and tangible. This is crazy stuff. And I think we need to be shaken awake sometimes because we can be so ho-hum about the baby in the manger. Have you ever heard of antimatter? I know the guys on Friday morning, last fall, we talked about this just a little bit. Um, So antimatter, I read. Um, Don't know all that much about antimatter, but it's made up of antiparticles. You might have expected that, um, which have the same mass as particles of ordinary matter, but actually have the opposite charge, okay? So antiparticles bind with each other to form antimatter in the same way that normal particles bind with each other to form normal matter. For example, a positron, which is the antiparticle of the electron, and the antiproton can form an anti-hydrogen atom. Okay, now before you completely glaze over like you did in your high school physics class, what you really need to know is that antimatter is crazy powerful stuff. This is actually for real, and, and they do research on this up at UPenn, or I'm sorry, at University of, I'm sorry, Penn State main campus, okay, not UPenn. There's a lab for this stuff up there. A button-sized amount. There you go. It's a visual aid right there. A button-sized amount of antimatter would be enough to propel the space shuttle into orbit. This isn't, this isn't a joke. This is real. Like You can go read about it, okay? It's really hard to harness and actually use, so no space shuttles are, are you know, exiting the atmosphere propelled by antimatter at this point, okay? It's extremely volatile. It's very expensive by one scientist's estima- estimation, and this is back in 06. I don't know about inflation for antimatter, but it costs about $25 billion to produce a gram of this stuff. 
Now, I'm actually going somewhere here with the the incarnation and all. If you had a Jupiter size portion of antimatter, it would still be just a grain of sand in our galaxy, and it would produce an intergalactic bang snap if you blew it up. You know, intergalactic, like there's a lot of galaxies. Just a bang snap. You know what a bang snap is? You know, it's like a little bit of gunpowder and a little paper, and you go throw it on the ground, make sure you hit concrete, and it goes snap. That's it. So the God who made that, who made antimatter, there's actually some that occurs naturally. They're talking about magnetic scoops where they could, because, you know, it's really expensive to produce it. The God who made that and much more impressive stuff that we have no clue about, he made all of that with just mere and omnipotent words. That God gestated in a little peasant girl's womb and swung a hammer with his dad, his so-called dad. So the one who knows all about antimatter and dark matter and black holes and nebulae and blue hypergiants and everything else we don't have a clue about, who actually holds together not just this little infinitesimally, infinitesimally small point that is planet Earth, but the entire universe by his powerful word, same word that created it, sustains it, that God took on flesh, got hungry and tired, and was betrayed and abandoned and mocked and spit upon and beaten and tacked naked to a cross of wood on a public thoroughfare. So the eternal word, the word of life, that which, that which was from the beginning, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Incarnation, crazy, awe-inspiring, wild stuff, this incarnation. Be good. We would do well to just ponder the glory of the incarnation um, in this season and not allow ourselves to just be ho-hum about the whole thing. So C.S. Lewis wrote in The Four Loves, to be sovereign of the universe is no great matter to God. In himself, at home in the land of the Trinity, he's sovereign of a far greater realm. We must keep always before our eyes that vision of Lady Julian's in which God carried in his hand a little object like a nut. And that nut was all that is made. God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Okay, so that's the God who condescended to become one of us. I mean, who can, who can measure the distance, the distance, quote-unquote, of the condescension of God in the incarnation? Incarnation, fairly benign phrase. We, you know, it just means taking on flesh or the embodiment of something. Okay, we say it easily. Emmanuel, God with us, past the eggnog. We throw it around like it doesn't weigh much at all. And here is the message of Christmas that is filled with weight. The weight of glory. Just think of the weight of the glory of God in this little human capsule. (laughs) The weight of glory of the infinite and omnipotent creator God of all that is weighing in 
I don't know, seven pounds maybe, held in the arms of a young peasant girl nursing at her breast. The incarnation is just mind-blowing. So, what was from the beginning, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. So he was incarnated. And that incarnation and manifestation means that we can observe the life. Okay? He grew up and became a man, started teaching and preaching, gained a following. God became physically audible, not just to a few select prophets like in the Old Testament. This is John saying, what we've heard, we're eyewitnesses. God became visible. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, like John says here. God became tangible. Jesus, the God, man in flesh and blood, right there in front of John. And after the resurrection, right, doubting Thomas, Come on, touch. Touch the wounds, the the scars. The invisible became visible and thus observable. So you know what this means? Um, It means that the gospel is about news, not advice. Maybe you've heard that before. It's about history, not philosophical curiosity. Okay, the message of Christmas, the gospel of Jesus, is not just moral of the story or proverbial wisdom type stuff. It's not spirituality in a vague or or kind of fluid sense. It's about history. The message of Christmas is about history. It's about things that happened in history. Visible, audible, tangible things. And so therefore, the gospel is not primarily about what you need to do or think or feel. I wonder if you believe that. The message of Christmas, the gospel, is not primarily about what you need to do or think or feel. It's about what was done in history, in the incarnation, in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the most decisive thing. And I don't know, how are you feeling this morning? Maybe you're not feeling so worshipful. Maybe you're so distracted. Maybe you're frustrated. So what? (laughs) Sometimes we base how we're doing with God on how we feel today. And so if we don't feel good or feel close to God, we just kind of like hang out in the orbit because we need to feel right to be worthy to really walk with God. No, 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 no. This is stuff that happened. So believe it and embrace the grace of the reality of the gospel because it happened. It's ultimately not decisive. How you feel is not decisive. The fact that it happened is decisive. So this makes all the difference in the world when it comes to what the message is. Look at what John is proclaiming here. He's a It's a proclamation of the life. The life was manifested. We've seen it. We've testified. Here we go. Proclamation of the life. We have seen, and verse 2, testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard were witnesses. We proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So eyewitnesses matter with this message. If it didn't happen, then it doesn't matter. If it happened, if it was observable, audible, tangible, history, Jesus' life and teaching and preaching and healing and miracles, 
and then his death and then his resurrection, if it all happened, then that is the message. It's the message of Christmas. And it must be proclaimed. Okay, the, if it's history, then the messengers, the witnesses, have no right to change the message. That would be doing violence to history. That'd be to change the facts. It'd be to tell a lie, right? So those who witnessed then, and we ourselves, as we see by faith and hear the gospel by faith, we are ambassadors. Okay, we speak only what we've seen and heard. We have no right to change the message. So it happened, and, and you know, it's true whether you or the person you proclaim it to embraces it or not. So the message of Christmas is not a sales pitch. It's not a matter of good advertising. The power of the message is not in the packaging. It's in the message itself about Christ himself. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, for in the wisdom of God, Greg actually alluded to this in his prayer, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, just on its own, by its own reason, our own reason and wisdom and intelligence, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified what happened in history. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So contrast that with the messages of Christmas that you've been bombarded with over this past month, okay? On the internet, on TV, at the mall, if you are brave enough to venture there, and the billboards. Do you realize that Everyone is evangelizing at the holidays. Have you noticed this? Everyone, you and I, we're, we're just constantly confronted, and not just at Christmas time, but especially at Christmas time, with evangelistic messages every day. Music we listen to, the billboards we see along the highway, commercials, they're all evangelizing us. It's all confronting us. Look at this confrontational evangelism. It's all inviting us to accept into our hearts these things that are going to save us, that are going to give us the freedom and the joy and the peace and the satisfaction and the life that we so long for. Sometimes they even command us. Are you ever offended at this advertising, at this evangelism? Haven't you noticed how they assume that we're suckers? Haven't you noticed their manipulative techniques? Will wearing this or that deodorant or this or that cologne really make the women line up? Will this or that perfume turn men's heads? Will drinking this or that beer really bring a bevy of girls? Might the ads for the latest, the cutting-edge tech gadgets be slightly inflated in their promises to change your life? Toothpaste, teeth whitener, I mean, just et cetera, et cetera, on and on. Really? Like, do they really think they were that dumb? That gullible? Are we? Why aren't we offended at this confrontational evangelistic messaging? I, I don't know if any of you are a creaster, you know. Have you ever heard this term? You come to church Christmas at Easter. If you are, we're glad you're here. It's almost Christmas, so you should be here. Um, you might be, or, or any of us, could be offended if someone comes up to us at a mall, tries to 
Tell us something. So maybe if I went up to somebody in the mall, just a random person, they might be offended that I would try to tell them about Jesus. But they're not offended if the beer commercials try to sell the bill of goods that all men are hormone-driven, couch-potato, TV-needing children whose perpetual adolescence needs to be accepted by the responsible, hard-working, more intelligent women in their lives. So you're offended if I try to evangelize you with with a really true message, news, gospel of grace, and yet you're not offended if the commercials teach your daughters to clothe and use their bodies as their most valuable commodity to get what they want. So if you're a Christian, maybe we just need to like, oh, Yeah, that's happening all around us. Are we more comfortable hearing those kinds of evangelistic messages in advertising than we are sharing the evangelistic message, the message of Jesus? Okay, all those ads, they're all bad news. They they promise and they don't deliver. They, they, They sell lies. They're not just selling you a car. They're selling you power and prestige and air for your pride tire. But it's never going to do it. And guess what? It's all just advice. It might not work. You might get a lemon. You might buy that car and it's a lemon. The girl or the guy you want to impress, they might hate that fragrance. It's just advice and it might be bad advice. The toy's going to break. So advice evangelism is always going to eventually disappoint. And you know, it's easy to bemoan and fire away at consumer culture and what Christmas has become, but maybe it's a gift that it's a mess. Disillusionment with the false promises and the bad answers and the bad advice might just burst that bubble that, you know, could capture us otherwise. So the message of Christmas is not this way. It's so much better. This news, this message is is not joy, peace, love for the privileged or the lucky or the wealthy or the gifted. This is the gift that is available to all. Okay, So the false Christmas gospels, alluring as they might be, mean that if you don't have the health or the family or the money, then you can't have the joy or the peace that this season offers. So the good news of Christmas with those messages is only available to a select few. But the true message of the incarnate Son of God who died for sinners, who rose again, conquering death and giving eternal life to all who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. That means that guess what? Even if you are lonely this Christmas, whether it's on account of not enough friends or family or because the ones you do never ever venture out of the shallow end of the pool relationally. If you're lonely with the Christmas message of Jesus, His incarnation, death, resurrection, you have fellowship with the Father and with the Son that's unbreakable and with His family, like our spiritual family here, like it says here. We proclaim this so that you, may, you too may have fellowship with us and our, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. If you are poor, you're in debt, you can't buy all that advertising is selling as far as the path to joy and satisfaction. 
It doesn't matter because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, incarnation, so that you through his poverty might be eternally rich with the riches of his mercy and his grace. If you're sick, how can you enjoy the holidays if you're sick? It's hard. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of that. But the message of Christmas is not happy, healthy people playing in the snow. The message of Christmas is Jesus died to make you eternally well. He didn't come for those who didn't think they need a doctor. He came to heal the sick. So if you feel your weakness and sickness, that's actually good turning up of the soil for you to receive the message of Christmas. So, All of these gifts are wrapped up in the gift of the Son, even for those of us who deal with all manner of loss and lack and sadness and anxiety and suffering in this valley of tears, and particularly as we walk through this season. I mean, just remember who heard the the message right off the bat, the good news. Ugly, dirty, smelly shepherds. Okay? It was good news to them. A humble peasant girl, prostitutes, people with family problems and financial problems and relational problems are the ones that came to Jesus and said, yes, this is good news. So for some of you, Christmas is this painful season. It's like turning the knife on all your problems. It's like a spotlight on what's missing or wrong in your life. It's like a magnifying glass on your pain. Not to minimize the difficulty of any of those things, but you could be giving too much ear to the wrong Christmas message and too little ear to the Christmas message. I ran across this, I think it was last year, and I thought of it again this year. I'm going to read this little thing that, um, it's a song, uh, musical artist Matt Redman wrote up uh, a year ago, I think. Not too long ago, I heard from someone about how difficult Christmas would be because of some heartbreak in their family. There was utter hopelessness and devastation. Christmas would be impossible to enjoy because of the freshness of this pain. It's been a a story very hard to forget. I get it. I mean, it makes sense on the level of Christmas being a time in which there's a lot of heavily concentrated family time. The holidays can be tense in even the best of circumstances. Maneuvering through the landmines of various personalities can be hard, even if there's no cancer, divorce, or empty seat at the table. What makes it the most wonderful time of the year is also what makes it the most brutal time of year. My own family has not been immune to this phenomenon. But allow me to push back against this idea a little, gently. I think we have it all backwards. We have it sunk deep into our collective cultural consciousness that Christmas is for the happy people. You know, those with idyllic family situations enjoyed around stocking-strewn hearth dreams. Christmas is for healthy people who laugh easily and at all the right times, right? The successful and the beautiful who live in suburban bliss who can easily enjoy the holidays. They have not gotten lost on the way because of their, the GPS they got last year. They're beaming after watching a Christmas classic curled up on the couch as a family in front of their ginormous flat screens. TV. We live and act as if this is who should be enjoying Christmas. But this is backwards. Christmas, the great story of the incarnation of the rescuer, is for everyone, especially those who need a rescue. Jesus was born as a baby to know the pain and sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus was made to be like us so that in his resurrection we can be made like him, free from the fear of death and the pain of loss. 
Jesus' first recorded worshipers were not of the beautiful class. They were poor, ugly shepherds beat down by life and labor. They had been looked down on over many a nose. Jesus came for those who look in the mirror and see ugliness. Jesus came for daughters whose fathers never told them they were beautiful. Christmas is for those who go to wing night alone. Christmas is for those whose lives have been wrecked by cancer and the thought of another Christmas seems like an impossible dream. Christmas is for those who would be nothing but lonely if not for social media. Christmas is for those whose marriages have careened against the retaining wall and are threatened to flip, threatening to flip over the edge. Christmas is for the son whose father keeps giving him hunting gear when he wants art materials. Christmas is for smokers who cannot, who cannot quit even in the face of a death sentence. Christmas is for prostitutes, adulterers, who long for love in every wrong place. Christmas is for college students who are sitting in the midst of, of the family and already cannot wait to get out for another drink. Christmas is for those who traffic in failed dreams. Christmas is for those who have squandered the family name and fortune. They want home but cannot imagine a gracious reception. Christmas is for parents watching their children's marriage fall into disarray. Christmas is really about the gospel of grace for sinners. Because of all that Christ has done on the cross, the manger becomes the most hopeful place in a universe darkened with hopelessness. In the irony of all ironies, Christmas is for those who will find it the hardest to enjoy. It is really for those who hate it most. So look then at the reasons why John was writing to these Christians that he loved. Verse 3. What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Second reason or purpose. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Remember where that waterfall came from. The eternal word of life, the Son of God with the Father, takes on flesh, suffers, dies in our place. It's manifest. The eternal life is manifest. He is the way, the truth, the life. He did it all that his work, what he did on the cross, might be proclaimed and shared with other people. Why? So that they may have fellowship with the Father and the Son, be reconciled to him, and also with all others who have fellowship with the Father and the Son by his Spirit that dwells within us. Why? So that our joy would be complete. So you're going to have fellowship with someone. You're going to sit around, and what, what do we tend to do? We tend to gravitate toward and talk with and have close relationships with people that share the same interests and loves and values that we have. We were made to treasure and value this eternal life, the one who made us for himself. And then when we get together, we celebrate that grace and we have this wonderful fellowship with each other because we have that fellowship with the Father and with the Son. You're going to look for joy somewhere. And Jesus said, I came, I'm saying these things, I'm doing these things so that your joy would be full, so that it would be real and substantial and durable 
even in this fallen world filled with tears and brokenness. And John knows that, and he's saying, I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It may be full. I don't want your joy to be on thin ice based on things that are so fragile. So John has been talking about what he proclaims, and now he's going to speak directly about that message. Look at verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Does this seem a little bit odd? I mean, where's the cross? This is the message? That God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all? Well, he'll get into that later. He says also in the letter that God is love talks about the gospel and the cross and the propitiation um, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross talks about that a lot. And we've already alluded to it as we've walked through this. But look here at what he does say here. This is the message. This is what we're announcing to you, that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. He's not capricious. He is not a Jekyll and Hyde God. He is the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. There's no hidden agenda with God. There's no ulterior motives. There's no hypocrisy in God. There's no false promises with God. There's no disappointments with God. There's no manipulation with God. There's no mood swings with God. He's light, pure light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Just think of what darkness means in the Bible. Evil. Confusion, lies, blindness, stumbling. Think of what light means. Goodness, truth, sight, walking in warmth and with true life. So darkness is bad news. Light is good news. So again, this progression, this is the source. He's light. This is who he is. This is where all this grace comes from. Where does it come from? The God who's light. There's no darkness at all. It's the source of all this gospel grace, the gospel progression. Christmas is about this ultimate fellowship and love, this relational community, this love, this harmony, this peace, entering into space-time and humanity in order to be seen and heard, to live and to die, the light of the world plunging into the darkness to overcome our sin and darkness and to dispel it to shine the light of truth and life so that we dead, darkened rebels could see. The slaves could be set free. We could be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light, his beloved son, so that we could have fellowship with God and with each other so that our joy would be full. And when that happens, we also proclaim that same message, that same progression is going to take place in us and through us as we share that message. So God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. Jesus, the light of the world, plunging into the darkness. It happened. It's history. So we believe the light. We receive the light. We walk in the light. And we shine and share the light. Christmas is good news, not because of stuff that is accessible to the lucky or the privileged, but because God came to give the gift to any who would believe. That's really good news. 
regardless of whether this season will be a painful one at a circumstantial level or a joyful one at a circumstantial level. So may that grace fill you and thrill you this holiday season. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you didn't leave us in the darkness. To, to think of what you willingly embraced, sending your son, Lord Jesus, you willingly, condescending, condescending to suffer, to be misunderstood, to be slandered, to be betrayed and abandoned. And that's just at the human level to then be turned away from by your Father for the, for the darkness to come in those hours on the cross because the judgment that we deserve was being spent on, on you. You were willingly receiving that punishment plunge into the darkness so that we could have the light of life. I pray that we would glory in the cross, glory in the grace of the gospel, wonder at the incarnation, and that our lives would be centered on Jesus so that our fellowship is sweet and intimate, close, satisfying, true, deep with you and with our brothers and sisters who know that same grace so that our joy will be durable so that we can shine with that same light and share it with so many who are still stumbling around in the darkness looking in all the wrong places, listening to all the wrong messages. So we thank you and we ask for your help to shine. In Jesus' name, amen.